everyone, welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. This week's episode is with Aragon co-founder Luis Cuende. Aragon is a platform for users to create their own decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAOs. DAOs are organizations that try to have as much of its operations and rules put into code as possible and have smart contracts or computer programs execute those operations. Owners hold tokens of DAOs, much like owners of companies hold shares, and they make management decisions by voting with those tokens. DAOs are as transparent, immutable, and secure as the blockchains they run on. So Aragon wants to make it easy for anyone to build these futuristic companies. Quenda started the project in 2016, at a time when most had given up on these organizations after the crash of what's likely the most well-known DAO so far, called the DAO. The DAO was meant to be a decentralized venture fund, but it was hacked after raising over $100 million, leading to the split of Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Quende pushed through, though, with the project with the firm belief that the current governance system is broken and people need tools to build their own transparent and decentralized organizations. The space has recovered and in the past year, thousands of DAOs holding millions of dollars have flourished. The dream of a more fair and open organization, which anyone can access and create, is back at a time when the world seems to really need them. People are losing trust in institutions and crypto can provide an alternative. But Quenda says he's saddened to discover the space is nowhere near ready. From serving as a vehicle to help those in need amid the current turmoil, to helping solve Aragon's own legal troubles, a lot more work lies ahead. Quende also talks about the different steps Aragon is taking to get there. We have Luis Quende here from Aragon. Luis, thank you so much for joining me today on the Define podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd love to start first with, with your own background and how you got interested in crypto and decentralized organizations and where do you get this kind of interest and passion to build this sort of protocol? Yeah, so I come from a humble family in Spain and I got into crypto in 2011. Um, back then it was just Bitcoin, not crypto really. But I saw this very liberating tool that could actually free people from financial slavery. I think financial slavery is uh, a very powerful kind of slavery that we are living today. And I saw people like my, like my parents who have been working their whole life for banks and that just didn't really seem right. And so at some point I got into it. I didn't quite understand how Bitcoin could like, you know, freedom. Um, I think I was 15 when I got into it, but now more and more I'm realizing that these tools are actually way more powerful than I thought they would be. So yeah, I got into it. Uh, my background was in the open source community. I got started with my own open source project when I was 12 years old in the Linux, um, in the Linux kind of like movement. And yeah, open source, um, open money, it kind of just really makes sense. Oh, that's so interesting that you're, your, your parents were working in banks. Were they in, in what part of, of operations? Well, like? they were not working in banks. They were enslaved by banks. That, oh, that is the way you like to put it, right? Okay. So like um, a lot of families, especially in Spain after the financial crisis, mm -hmm. people were just working uh, for to pay like their mortgages because um, mm -hmm. you had like basically this very, very, very clear peak in, in the... Um, real estate industry that, mm -hmm. that the banks actually cost in like 20, um, in like 2008, where basically in 2008, banks in Spain were just giving money to everyone mm -hmm. and everyone would purchase like three or four flats um, because uh, they thought they could make money that way. And then banks basically stopped that um, and crashed the price of the market like drastically, basically one year to the next one, leaving thousands of families uh, basically enslaved their life uh, mm -hmm. for, for debts that they could never ever pay in like 40, 60, 80 years, whatever. Okay. And so that is what, I don't know, like something inside me told me that is inherently wrong. And there is technology that can actually free the world from 
banks and from this power that I don't think is justified. Okay. Oh, okay. That's that's so powerful that you were able to see, you know, from your own parents and, and experience how irresponsible management from banks can really crush up a person's life or make them so so dependent on a mortgage or an outstanding uh, debt balance. Okay, and then so you got into open source uh, protocols from a very very early age at 12. So how did that develop, and then how did that lead to Aragon? Yeah, I was very bored at the school because um, mm -hmm. you know it's like a bunch of things that you have to memorize, and I just didn't really see the um, like the meaning out of it. And I got into open source because I thought it was like this incredible, very powerful way that you create code and you could basically create new stuff that people all over the world can use with almost zero investment. Like you have a laptop and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, and for me coming from a humble family, that was like mind blowing. It was like, I don't need money to explore my hobby. I can just literally have a laptop and then grab code that other mm -hmm. people have done. And then, you know, if I'm successful, maybe I can contribute back um, one day, right? And let other people that were, were in my position also use this code and enhance it. And I don't know, it was a kind of mind blowing for me. <laughs> yeah, no, it is pretty incredible. So so what did you start building? So you started building, um, I've been always very obsessed with taking like complex products and making them easier. And so Linux is like this great operating system that is fully open source, um, but it never kind of really had a splash in desktop users. Mm -hmm. So I, I took like, um, the like most well-known linear distribution ubuntu and i made a bunch of like ux uh tweaks to make it very easy like my threshold was can my mom use this and at some point my mom was able to use it um mm. after a few years like the linux user experience has enhanced so much that like my work wasn't really needed anymore mm. um because like canonical and other and other players have done an outstanding job in making it easier but I don't know, um, I thought that was interesting because, um, you know, like free software for me was a, a big part of my life. And I, I just thought that people should be able to use um, an operating system without having to own the latest machine, the latest Mac, the latest Windows computer that usually costs a lot of money. Um, simply it's like Russia, Latin America, where they may need these like low cost computers and they may need them to actually work. Um, great. And then, so that's open source. And then how did you, you said you got interest in Bitcoin and, uh, you know, pretty early as well. And I've talked with many people who started obviously in crypto through Bitcoin because that, that's all it was. But then, you know, when they started building, they're trying to build and their dApps on Bitcoin, they found like all these different uh, dif difficulties in, in doing so. Did, did you experience something similar and how was kind of your road into, you know, working with smart contracts. Yeah, kind of. So like Bitcoin is great, but it's extremely limited. So like the first um, startup that I worked on was a time stamping service. So like I've been always very interested in the non-financial utility of um, all of this. Because like Bitcoin as money sounded really great, but then I discovered, um, well, I didn't discover this, like I, Audible did, but like I, I got to know that you can timestamp stuff with it because like you have this blockchain and you have like this um, proof that something existed at a given point in time. And mm -hmm. therefore you can like, if you can use it for money, you can use it to like embed a data hash, right? So um, I worked on this startup called Stampery that I co-founded to tackle on that specific um, problem of how can you prove that something existed, some file existed at a given point in time. Mm -hmm. And we launched a service in 2014 or 2015 and it was really exciting to me to see those like non-financial applications, but obviously the next thing was DAOs, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and DAOs enable, for me, like basically what Bitcoin did for money, DAOs do for governance and DAOs do for human organization. And that's what it's really exciting to me. I think financial applications are really great, but for me, like the whole grail is how can we translate this into people organizing better and having more freedom to organize? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, so I'm guessing kind of your first contact with DAOs was the DAO or in 2016, there was obviously most people listening will know this um, big project, uh, the biggest so far in Ethereum at, at that time, which wanted to do a decentralized uh, venture fund. 
it really blew up and then it was hacked and then it you know resulted in the split of ethereum into ethereum and ethereum classic um the rest is history <laughs> but so what was your kind of like initial experience with DAOs and, and the DAO, like what did you first think when you came across this project? What uh, kind of involvement did, did you have there? Yeah, I mean, when I saw the DAO, I, I thought this is really cool, but there are so many things this can like not work, um, which I mean, I still think that about like a bunch of things that we're building in this space because there is an inherent risk with anything we do, right? But I thought it was very cool. And I was very sad to see that it blew up because um, they saw with when it blew up, like, People thought, because of the name, the DAO, people thought that all DAOs were inherently bad. And mm -hmm. so it took a few years to actually make people change their mind. We actually started Aragon in um, November 2016, like a few months after the DAO hack. Mm -hmm. And people were so skeptical about DAOs. Like, that was mm -hmm. probably the kind of the worst time to start something like that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there were a bunch of things. Like, one big trigger was Donald Trump winning the elections in America, uh, which made us realize we need a global reset, we need new governance tools, this is not working out. Mm, interesting. Wow, okay, so to make a DAO project right after the DAO blew up must have taken, you know, a, a lot of courage and like a really strong belief in that this would work out because at the time, yeah, like you said, people had really kind of given up on that dream of decentralized organizations, or, or at least many had in, in the Ethereum community and like the crypto community. So, okay, so it's, it's interesting you said like Trump winning the election was a big trigger. And you said that to you kind of the, the real most interesting use case for smart contracts and blockchain is, is governance. Can you dig into that? Like what, what was driving you to build Aragon at that time, at, a, at an especially <laughs> difficult time to do so? So the funny thing is that my co-founder Jorge and me were working on a different startup that then kind of like pivoted into Aragon. So we were working on this platform to basically end with patent trolls. Patent trolls are these entities that purchase patents, very stupid patents. Um, they file them and then they exploit them against like normal kind of like retail people or, or business owners. So like one example is there is um, a patent for, I think like a printer um that a patent troll owns not a legit company but a patent troll and then they call a bunch of small businesses and they and they say hey i have this patent either you pay me or i will sue you and they don't do anything else and they make billions of dollars a year and so we were really frustrated with that problem um and then we tried to like tackle it in different ways ultimately we found out that the best way was probably like to do some kind of on-chain insurance so people and startups can buy insurance against patent trolls but then we thought wow starting an insurance company, it's crazy. Like, you know, we are, we were like 20, 21, uh, 22, something like that. And we look at the requirements and we were like, there's no way on earth that we can create an insurance company. <laughs> what did we do? We thought, well, we can build this on Ethereum. And we actually got to start building that kind of first prototype. Um, but then we also realized that the core problem that we were trying to solve of patent trolls was actually not a problem we could solve because the government, the US government is so crooked that they have the perverse incentives to keep these patent trolls alive. They don't want to change the patent law. And so we thought the problem is actually the law. The problem is how crooked the system is. And so let's apply this technology, let's apply Ethereum and smart contracts to actually providing governance um, tools for people to fix the system. Okay, so wow, you, you were going after a, a huge problem. Like, so, so you had an issue with like the, the US legal system itself. And so your way to tackle this was let's build kind of a separate system, right? To let people self-organize. Is that kind of the, the right way to look at it? Yeah, basically we saw that it was impossible to win the game based on the rules. So you gotta create your own rules. Okay. Um, okay, this seems like obviously super subversive. You're actually uh, calling for, for people to kind of ignore their local, you know, legislations and, and build on their own terms. Is that right? Like, and how feasible is it for this to kind of gain um, like mainstream adoption? If you ask me in 2016, 2017, maybe even 2016, I would say, yeah, all the way this is going to happen. People are going to like rebel. Um, I think now, that will happen just in a very different uh, like time scale and i think now i have changed my mind in a lot of small things that we can do to actually get this to the mainstream 
And a bunch of those things actually go with like getting regulation to be better for the things we're building, um, making sure that people have the legal comfort to interact in a, in a DAO without then getting prosecuted and stuff like that. So you have to take compromises, but the long, long vision is obviously to create a decentralized jurisdiction and for people to be able to opt into it. Um, and just giving freedom to people and commoditizing a bunch of services that the nation state monopolizes today. Um, oh, that's so interesting to see how you've kind of evolved in your view and, and maybe not so much your view, but kind of the, the, the right road to, to get there, right? Can you get into, into that? Like what exactly has changed in kind of the roadmap to mainstream adoption for DAOs and um, how to kind of bridge that gap between uh, regulations and decentralized organizations? Yeah, I think one very interesting point that we we have been thinking a lot about is DAOs have to be truly decentralized for them to even uh, go mainstream and be legal. Because if DAOs are not decentralized, meaning that they have um, actual leadership and they are dependent on that leadership, then you have a bunch of considerations, for example, like the whole kind of like SEC um, is looking at security concern. And obviously you don't want people to like go to jail because of interacting with DAOs, that is extremely important. And so therefore these DAOs need to be decentralized and um, they need to be decentralized more in the social side, like they need to not have leadership more than in the technical side. Like for example, we spent a bunch of time making the front end for Aragon truly decentralized. Like if you go to, to the app right now, it's surfaced straight from IPFS, there is no, there's no server at all. Um, and so that is just great but we didn't spend that much time thinking about the social implications. And so that has been quite a learning for, for us. And right now we're focusing much more on that. Like how can we actually make this vehicle decentralized and not use a club? Because a bunch of VAUs today are clubs and that's a great step forward. But if we really want to uh, make DAOs happen, they need to be decentralized and autonomous and not use organizations. Okay, so does that mean, for example, not having um, like a management structure, like uh, you and, and no. here are clearly, you know, the, the co-founders of this, does that pose like a, a, a legal risk to you? Um, and would you do things differently in the future? Like, would you look to like step down from any sort of hmm. like control of, of Aragon? Yeah, I mean, right now, the, the co-founders, we both sit on the board of the association. The Aragon Association is the kind of entity that um, manages the treasury, raising the token sale, and basically funds the, the project. If we had a DAO back in the day, we would just have created a DAO because it's a, it is happening to us to decentralize a legal entity, basically. Mm. Now that we are in this position, it is a very tricky position to be in because on one hand, you have like a set of stakeholders, which are, in this case, Aragon Network token holders, which uh, they want control, they want to exercise their voice. On the other hand, you have the Aragon Association, which is a Swiss legal entity that has fiduciary responsibility to invest uh, funds that were raising a token sale towards making Aragon happen. And so that means, for example, that like, you know, if um, we had this process in which entity holders could signal their intent about the treasury allocations, mm -hmm. but for example, if entity holders signal, hey, you guys should give a million dollars to ISIS, like to go to like a crazy example. We just couldn't do that because if we did that, the liability is not in any of the holders, it's on the board members, which are Jorge Miss, we would basically like end up in jail. So there's this like very hard tension between having a centralized legal entity and a decentralized community. So um, I, I am pretty much looking forward to that day in which we just have a decentralized community and then maybe like legal entity takes care of like very specific things like trademarks. I actually wrote this blog post in 2017 and 2018 about like, how you can decentralize a legal entity step by step. Um, like first you start with like, uh, you know, like kind of community signaling and then you you can throw in um, an actual kind of like um, pool of funds that they can manage. And then you can throw in like social media accounts, even that the DAO can control, this like the sci-fi, but can be done. And then ultimately you can somehow give the DAO a legal status and transfer trademarks to them. But this is like a very kind of like long process um, so we're still working on it. Yeah, I think that's interesting for people who are building, you know, DAVs and their own kind of Ethereum or blockchain-based 
teams and, and want to do it in a decentralized way and, and minimize legal risk as much as possible, like what should they do? It seems like you're calling for an end to the Swiss foundation because it's just, you know, that tension is, is too much between the DAO and, and, and the foundation. It seems pretty hard to manage, but can you actually have a, a successful project without, you know, some sort of hierarchy, some sort of leader driving the vision, driving the team? I don't know, seems pretty impossible to me. Like it just can't be like this amorphous group voting with tokens mm. all the time. Um, or, or maybe that's suitable for like a very narrow set of organizations. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty experimental. So like there are a lot of risks involved. The example that I'm most excited about is actually Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin mm. has proven to be leaderless for like over a decade and it's it's been working out uh, incredibly well. And I think we need to replicate more models like that. I think for some projects, they might need a leader and that's it. But for some others, you can set, you can encode the rules and the incentives in such a way that the DAO itself is the one that incentivizes people to continue working on the vision. So the one interesting thing that we're working on right now um, is the concept of Aragon agreements and the Aragon court. So basically, Aragon agreements is the tight integration of Aragon court into Aragon DAOs. And the idea is basically that you can have this manifesto-driven organizations in which apart from smart contract code, you can write a manifesto, you can write a set of bylaws in like plain English, mm -hmm. and then you can have all the actions be disputable if, or be disputed if they don't adhere to the manifesto. So basically what you can do here is you can have DAOs that have a much more like clear mission, um, more than just like the things that are encoded in the, in the code, which sometimes may fail or sometimes may not enca encapsulate the kind of subjective mission. So we're working on that right now. And I think that allows for like DAOs to be much more, how to say, like much more subtle and, and much more humane in a way, because you can really encapsulate the vision and make it last years. Yeah, no, that, that sounds, sounds like a, a good solution to have something to complement kind of the smart contract and the code that's written. Mm. Um, what do you think of projects like Open Law who are trying to also like upload actual legal contracts into smart contracts and, and dApps. Do you think that's like also a good solution? Yeah, I think it's very cool. I think the, like, I think smart contracts are great, but I'm by any means in smart contracts uh, maximalist. I think that like, you know, blockchain servers, low computer, the, the more things we can like not put on it, the better. So um, I think contracts are, then we, we can have, we can run into some issues, for example, like, do we end up recreating the whole legal system by doing this? Well, we don't know and there is no way to tell until we actually try. But I think having this kind of like more subjective, subtle agreements, apart from smart contracts, is a very good um, way to even douse a bunch of abilities that they don't have right now. Right, yeah. Yeah, it seems like um, a practical way, way forward to make sure that you're not like doing anything um, against regulations or anything. Um, yeah. So, okay, so... Um, we talked about your idealism in, in starting Aragon and around DAOs in 2016. I think today is also a, a really interesting time around the concept of decentralization and, and kind of having this like parallel financial system and parallel governance because of the turmoil that the world is in. Um, you know, on, on one hand with coronavirus highlighting how how much control central banks and uh, financial institutions and governments have over over people and um in the u.s recently with the riots also highlighting how how broken the system is in some ways so it does seem like there's this kind of new wave of adoption for crypto waiting to happen with all of the, these like catalysts for it what are you seeing? I mean, are, are you seeing increased interest for the people building DAOs? Does this change your views at all, make you uh, more bullish? Or, uh, I mean, what do you think kind of the impact is or, or, or will be? Yeah, I think, I think all of the events that are going on right now in the world are pretty much a cry for help um, for technology that we're building and for DAOs especially. The thing that silenced me is that I think we are nowhere ready like I was um, working on this project called Help DAO, which basically is like a way for like local health squads to form and help people in need and like vulnerable groups in coronavirus. 
And my idea was to use uh, crypto and to use DAOs to actually bring this to people in the streets uh, that are needing this. Like, for example, partnered up with um, a homeless person in Madrid who um, has a big following of homeless people and trying to actually like fundraise all around the world to like get these people some help now that the world is kind of like, you know, it's kind of apocalyptic. And I wrote this post in my blog about all the problems that we went through, like user experience problems, regulatory problems, stuff like Ethereum gas. And it was really saddening. Like we've been building so much for ourselves in our own community that we have forgotten to focus on the things that really matter. Oh, wow. No, that's a powerful statement. What do you think are the main things missing for DAOs and DAPs to be useful to actual people outside of this like tiny bubble? We seem to stop focusing on them. Like right now we're building for our fellow uh, crypto natives, but like if you walk any user through the flow of you simply donating, uh, like on-ramp, um, interacting with Ethereum, with gas, and stuff like that, you figure out that this is not made for like normal humans. Mm. And so I, see, I, I think that we need to really focus on it. And also I think we need to prioritize more the social applications uh, versus financial applications. Like I love DeFi and I think Ethereum is like kind of gravitating towards that hub, but I think we also need like a hub for more like social interactions that are inherently cheap. Because incentives are very different, right? Like right now in Ethereum with the current gas prices, if you are interacting with DeFi, I think it's still probably good for you because like DeFi inherently talks about money. So like you can make more money than your uh, gas fees. But right now, like just donating to someone, uh, to like some homeless person in need 10 bucks and paying for um, out of those 10 bucks in gas fees is not something viable. So I think we need this more kind of like social approach um, and, and not only think about finance, that is great, but I think we need to think more about the social approach too. Yeah, no, that's a great point. On gas fees, fees are still for sending tokens. They're still up like a couple of cents, right? Do you think for like simple applications like that, like donating, do you think that's still it's still high? Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, you you use um, you don't only need to donate. Like for example, when I was doing uh, architecting the whole flow of donation, I thought, well, people need ETH, right, um, in order to like interact with these networks, and so they need to purchase ETH. And so the the way of purchasing ETH is via like some kind of like payment provider. Payment providers have their own fees and they are pretty high in crypto. Like they can go up to like 5% with like $20 minimum deposit, which is crazy. But then apart from that, like once you have ETH, you don't want people to donate ETH to like some DAO or someone else because ETH fluctuates a lot. You want, you want them to donate in a stable coin. And so what do you do? You try for them to swap that ETH that they got for DAI because you cannot just give them die, right? Because like they need ETH to actually send it, send the money. So like they need ETH. So they need to swap that and swapping that is probably like four or five bucks uh, on Uniswap or any other exchange. So yeah, it is not that simple. Like if you really think about it step by step, it is a very complex process. Right, no, that's true. So ideally you'd want something where you can easily go from euros or dollars to donating, donating die. Uh, without all the steps in between of buying ETH yeah. and like then exchanging ETH for DAI, paying all the gas fees in, in between, and then donating DAI. It has to be a lot more streamlined. Yeah. yeah, and there are a bunch of very unsexy problems. Like, you know, on-ramps are a very unsexy problem, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like uh, you have to go through a bunch of regulatory approvals and get your company have like partnership with a bank probably. But it's so important right now, like crypto on-ramps really suck. It's very hard to onboard people into this uh, if they have to like spend five bucks and uh, 50 minutes to use get onboarded, right? So we need to lower the barriers. Like I think crypto and open finance and open money, it's great if it's inclusive and people can use it. If they cannot use it, then we are building an oligarchy again. That's true. What's the point? Still, I mean, is it possible that that's, this is kind of the very early stages and, and that's why it's very niche and being used by, you know, speculative traders and, and more experienced traders and it will lead to something that's more inclusive? Or do you think we're simply not on that path? I think right now we just don't care about mainstream so much and like mainstream adoption. Uh, we are like, these people should get into our sect and they should learn everything by getting into our sect instead of thinking, hey, let's not make this a sect and let's try to like onboard people, right? I think that's a very different mindset. I think we need more designers, we need more communicators. Um, we need more people like that. Um, and, and I think like 
people who are simplifiers and not complexifiers. I saw someone write a tweet about that and I completely agree. We need simplifiers right now. Yeah. No, totally agree as well. Um, yeah, trying to do a, a little bit on that with the defined simplifying some of the uh, exactly that happen every day. Um, yeah. And with Aragon, are you changing the, the way things work uh, following that, like making things simple? Because I think DAOs are an, a really kind of deep, inspiring concept, but I think it's hard for the normal person to to get it like why why do we need this how does it work like how can i use it how can you uh, bridge that communications gap with a normal non-crypto person about DAOs? yeah so we were trying to set up this page called what's a DAO because like it seems like a very trivial question but actually like there is not a single resource you can use for that so like if you go to aragon.org slash DAO we put together this like beautiful page uh, that kind of narrates why why they are important but I think even more than that, the most important thing is to tell success stories that like people get instantly when you talk about that. And so I think we need to get out there. We need to figure out who are the people that need this the most and we just need to make it work for them. And once there is a huge movement that uses DAO to empower it, um, or even the small use cases, we just need to show them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So on that, like, who do you think is like one, who are these people who is like the one like use case that you'd focus on? That is a very good question, um, and we are we're figuring that out. I think the the internet communities uh, or like sub communities, like you know, Reddit now has a couple of subreddits that have um, tokens. Actually, that was born out of like an experiment that a community member did, DAOifying uh, the F Trader subreddit that has been like a DAO for like I think like a year or so. So I think those community like points or tokens are super interesting and kind of like DAOifying is like the next step after you have these tokens. Mm -hmm. I think also social movements, um, like right now there is a lot of places in the world where the nation state is failing and DAOs as a way for people to pull resources and kind of like provide a safety net for each other could be a, a great killer app. Also UBI, um, instead of waiting for the nation state to provide that, we can have a small circles of UBI. So um, all of these things are super interesting, but they all require that we like cross the chasm and we get people using these tools the same way that they use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Right. Yeah. And in the end, like for DAOs to work, you, you need um, the token to participate. I think that's kind of the key to any DAO, right? So we still need to solve that onboarding problem that you were talking about, like as a first step. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted, okay, so shifting a, a little bit uh, topics, I definitely wanted to talk about this recent controversy that Aragon had with one of its grant winners, Atar, because more than kind of the, the controversy itself, I think it's interesting to talk about the questions it raised. One of the questions was why the need to solve this in a physical court when the whole point of, of Aragon was to build kind of a, a decentralized governance and voting system. I'd love to kind of hear hear from you uh, the thought process and hmm. the, the kind of the steps that, that led to that uh, outcome. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think setting aside the kind of the legal part, which was like we were threatened for months in the in the mid space. And so when that happens, you have to defend in the mid space and kind of like claim jurisdiction. Um, but that is kind of the legal side. Apart from that, like the the interesting part about the court right now is that it can enable DAOs to do a bunch of things that they couldn't do in, before using Aragon agreements. So that, for example, you can define in your Aragon agreement, 51% um, attacks will not be tolerated or, or stuff like, um, before sending out the payment, we need an invoice or like, you know, you can define these kind of things or you can even do like content moderation. These are not simple use cases, but they are nowhere near replacing a full flesh court. And also the way it works, uh, it is like Aragon court, it is um, basically like fully limited liability in the sense of like parties must agree before and uh, what, are, what are their stakes, what are their bonds? And then basically there's like a, subjective oracle which is our own court which decides uh which party like wins that bond basically so it is like a very it's a subjective oracle at the end of the day and right now it is very early days um it will work for content moderation it will work for like curating lists which is something that we're doing now actually the only thing that our own court has done um until now is curating a list that has been like the only kind of president's campaign because we're still running the president's campaign on it to kind of test the waters 
So it is used like extremely early and it's not even the main focus. Like it doesn't, uh, it doesn't want to replace a full fledged court, not yet and probably not in the next following years. Okay. Um, so, okay, so Aragon court is too early, but still, I mean, couldn't, couldn't you have uh, had uh, ant holders vote on, on the resolution of this problem with Autark? And I guess like, I, I should give um, a little bit of uh, context mm -hmm. for, for listeners. Um, so Aragon has a, or had a, a grant uh, program and one of the winners of uh, those grants, Autark had um, some, uh, you know, uh, projects uh, that it had to deliver. Um, Aragon said it wasn't meeting those deliverables, so it uh, stopped paying out the grants. Um, Autark then threatened to sue in Switzerland and, and then in the US. And so before they could sue Aragon, so them in Switzerland, you know, to prevent the, the legal problem going outside of their own jurisdiction. And so, you know, the fact that Aragon was taking this problem with uh, one of their grant winners to like the meat space, as it's called, as in like to, to mean physical courts, you know, drove a little bit of controversy in this space. And so it's interesting. I mean, on, on one hand, like saying that Aragon court, like the, the mechanism itself isn't as developed yet to handle, handle those issues, right? But what about just like the, you know, the main voting mechanism with, with and token holders? And, um, and I think that's kind of the, the mechanism most DAOs are, are using now, just have like token holders vote yeah. on a certain outcome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um... There's still the the legal part, like you know, like once they threaten in the mid space, you have to defend on the mid space. But even with that, we offer we offer that option because I think it's um like you know they they got bought in by token holders and we offer that. There is like a couple they I mean they didn't take uh, take it they chose not to do it, but I actually I actually agreed with with them um, because we wanted it to be private. You have this thing where. Like as a manager um, and as a founder, you always have this thing in mind, which is um, praise in public, criticism private. And that's something that you do with uh, employees and, and, and like team members always. And mm -hmm. if you take that philosophy to everything in life, um, you know, we wanted them to really be able to fundraise. We wanted them to be able to like move on. And the last thing you want is to like give this kind of like negative um, like feedback in public. But that's a very interesting point about DAOs. Like, will we be able as humans and as like, you know, persons to just disregard that completely and like give uh, feedback in public because in some DAOs you may actually need it in this case mm -hmm. it wasn't about DAOs it was like two legal entities but in DAOs there is no other way right there is no like mid space you have to use right. the public about it so that's going to be an interesting challenge for sure yeah it's um it's about like the question of taking everything in a company and making it public because of the nature of how these things work. Like they're, they're supposed to be transparent, like the vote is transparent, the, the way you voted it will be there forever and you know, for people to, to check. So um, it does kind of change the paradigm on, on how our organizations should work. So I guess, you know, in this case, you felt that the, this conflict just couldn't be solved, you know, kind of on chain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, more than that, like, I think uh, back in the day, it was just like, if we go public, then it's going to be really bad for, for the reputation wise. Um, and since the conflict is between like legal entities, then uh, let's try to use like settle it um, amicably. But that is kind of the tension, right? Like, uh, and something that people are confused about, like in this case, there were two legal entities. There was like not really any kind of like DAO in the middle. And that's because we are, in the end of the day, like we're in this kind of like middle weird spot where a bunch of things are not DAOs yet. Um, and you have to use the mid space for a lot of things. And we cannot get there fast enough. Like I, I really don't like the mid space. Um, I really don't like bureaucracy. I, I like DAOs. And so we need to get there. It's, it goes back to what we were talking about before, kind of this, this tension that still exists between DAOs and, and having legal entities and how to break them. Yeah. Um, so I guess this is like one example of, of why it's difficult to have those two things, right? Like if there's a legal entity suing your legal entity, how to take that to a DAO? Um, so yeah, this opens a bunch of like, yeah, there are like fascinating questions around what will DAOs do around these kind of issues if they cannot resort to like be private uh, in the mid space? 
um, yeah, it's like fascinating to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know if, if um, any of the like privacy solutions that you know are being developed right now apply to any of these issues. I don't know, like private transactions with uh, Tornado Cash. I don't know if, if that could be applied to token votes or like I, I don't know if that. Yeah. It's really hard right now, like as far as I understand, uh, and I'm like by no means like an expert in like CKS and RX or anything like that. But what I understand is that like right now you like you cannot really do fully um, off chain private votes. Like you have to choose between basically like doing on chain and very high costs or doing off chain uh, kind of layer two, but without that privacy. And so, yeah, I think technology is just kind of not there yet. Oh, interesting. Okay, and then um, I wanted to talk about the the, the growth of, of DAOs in, in the past year or so. We talked about kind of the, the bad word that they had gained after the DAO, but I think that's been, you know, that page has been fully turned by now. I mean, you know, with uh, Moloch DAO, Venture DAO, DeLau, like there's been a bunch of interesting projects using decentralized organizations. So how and you've been there like from the very beginning so how how have you seen that grow like some what are some of the um, most interesting projects around that and after all this do you think uh, people have really kind of lost that fear of of DAOs uh, are we not not there yet yeah people have totally lost that like uh the interesting thing about the crypto space is that like no one has a lot of memory so, um, you know, like no one remembers like four years ago, four years ago is like kind of like dinosaurs uh, yeah, were yeah. ruling the earth for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's a positive side. Um, and yeah, there are a bunch of like cool things happening right now in the in the DAO realm. There is, uh, there's like the, the spy DAO, which is like creating kind of financial mm -hmm. derivatives. Um, there is a DX DAO, which is another DAO that is like creating kind of like financial like DeFi products uh, in a fully centralized manner. So like, yeah, tons of interesting stuff. And it's been really great to see that 2020 actually was the year of the DAO. Um, and I think it's been the year of the DAO because we're still on it. At least the year of the DAO for the crypto space. I don't think it's the year of the DAO for the mainstream at all. Definitely. I think that will be like maybe 2023 or something like that or 2024. Yeah. Yeah. But we're getting closer and that's super exciting. What about growth on Aragon itself? Like, can you give me some of the numbers? Like, how many DAOs have been created so far? Like, compared with a year ago, like, what has growth been, been like? Yeah, it has been very, very good. Like, right now we have 1,400 DAOs created. 1,400? Um, wow. Yeah, 1,400. I mean, like, not, not a lot of them are um, obviously, like, active on a monthly basis. I would say, like, maybe... 10% of them are, are active, but then you have like around, I think six to seven K uh, memberships. So like people who are members of these DAOs. And then um, the like one interesting number that has like multiplied by 20, I think since that year or something like that is the assets under management in these DAOs. Like right now it's about $12 million. If you also count the economies that run on them, for example, like Melon Protocol or Decentraland are powered by Aragon. Um, I think Synthetix is gonna um, announce that soon too. I think actually I read that in, in your newsletter. Uh, they are using Aragon. That, that was interesting. Um, and if you count all of that, it's probably going to be like in the hundreds of millions very, very soon. So it's like mind blowing to me. Yeah. yeah. 12 million now and, and one year ago, how much was it? I think it was something like one. Wow. Okay. So yeah. um, what about like, do you have data on, on like uh, participation? Like, uh, like what percentage of DAO members are actually like voting and yeah, participating on, on governance. Yeah, I mean, since the Aragon framework is pretty flexible, meaning that like people can like basically do whatever DAO they want. We don't mm -hmm. have like statistics that are so yeah, um, so like specific. Um, I actually think that like voting right now is very clunky, so I would expect like numbers to be very low. That's one thing that we need to work on. Like we need to make voting so easy as like, you know, liking something on Telegram or, or on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah that'd be awesome. Okay, and, and that brings me to going forward for, for Aragon. What are the main things that you're excited to be working on and like that you hope to deliver soon? Yeah, so the the next thing is called Aragon Connect. It is the number one feature users and developers have requested us, and that is completely customizing the front end for their DAO. So that is the main thing uh, that is going to be out like very, very soon. 
So basically, you will be able to create whatever interaction you want. Because right now, Aragon is like probably the most flexible kind of DAO framework. Like you can plug and play pieces like basically Legos. Like you know, uh, if DeFi is like um, money Legos, Aragon is like governance Legos. Mm -hmm. But that has been pretty hard to put um, under like a generic user experience because it's like so hard to make generic products work. And so with Aragon Connect, people and developers will be able to create like much more tailored user experiences that will be way better. So I'm excited about that. The other thing is Aragon agreements. So basically like DAOs will be able to set their manifesto or vision and then um, have their votes be disputed if they don't adhere to that manifesto or vision. So that brings them like more kind of like power uh, that we have in like, you know, in human language to like specify more subtle things. And also there is Aragon chain, which is gonna be uh, a blockchain that is tailored towards this kind of like social DAO interactions, uh, making them like super fast and, and cheap. So we will have like Ethereum for things that are kind of like higher security and maybe like things that are more interoperable. And then Aragon chain for those that are like kind of like lower stakes and using like fast execution and, and cheap. Wow, and I mean, will this chain, is it a layer two chain on Ethereum or is it like a completely separate network? It is a Cosmos SDK chain that will have a bridge to Ethereum. Ah. Um, when are, are you planning, like when is the launch expected? That is a very good question. Uh, so like I'm not working on it, um, like personally, Chainsafe is the team that is working on it. Uh, yeah. They expect to release a testnet like extremely soon, like they are nailing the, the like final details for a testnet. Wow. So um, yeah, after testnet, a mainnet comes. <laughs> right. Um, and is it, does it work with staking? Like will people stake A&T? Yeah, proof of stake, yeah. And it will be basically the way we are looking at like derivative assets for, um, I don't know, derivative, but like kind of linked assets to A&T because we have like A&T as this kind of like a store of value for the like uh, Aragon economy. Mm -hmm. And then we have ANJ, which is the work token that jurors need to get in order to work in Aragon court. And then we will have ARA, which is the token that validators will need to validate on our own chain. So that way we kind of like isolate crypto economic incentives because like having one chain for, or one token for a chain and an arbitration system probably doesn't work uh, very well for crypto economic incentives. And then they all tie back to a and bonding curve. Wow, okay, that sounds really complicated. <laughs> I don't know if there's <laughs> another team that's tried three different tokens for, for a blockchain. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's definitely complicated. Um, it's one of these things that I, I want to simplify. Like the way to simplify it is just like, there is A&T and then you can like access linked services by exchanging it for another token. That's like the TLDR, like super easy explanation for it. Okay. Okay, that's exciting. Um, yeah, will be interesting to see. And so what kind of like processes or what things will you look to do on, on Aragon chain versus on Ethereum? Yeah. So for example, like if you want to set up a group of friends uh, to like pull some funds and like do stuff together, but you don't need to access DeFi, uh, you don't need like extremely high security because maybe you are pulling like a hundred bucks, then that's the thing that Aragon Chain will really excel at because we're going to make it very, very, very easy for people to interact with DAOs and very cheap compared to Ethereum. Because when you have a chain, you can customize like um, a bunch of bits and like the opcodes to basically make it cheaper for certain activities to happen and discourage other activities. Like Ethereum has to be very neutral Aragon chain doesn't have to be that neutral. We can say, hey, DAOs are the main thing here. We're going to prioritize them. Um, and if you run a, you know, a Ponzi scheme, maybe it's not going to be that well suited for it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so people will be able to choose whether they'll build their DAO on Ethereum or on Aragon chain, depending on the needs that they have? Exactly. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, okay, and then... So wh where does the staking come in? Is it like when you build a DAO, you need to stake ANT to to fund it, or how how would that work? Not really. We're we're looking at DAOs as a common good. So like the DAO infrastructure that we've been working on for the last uh, like four years is all open source and doesn't need any token at all. It's like completely agnostic. But then the Aragon network provides services like dispute resolution, which is the case of Aragon agreements, mm -hmm. Aragon chain, and then DAOs need uh, like a subscription to, for example, uh, the Aragon court to use Aragon agreements, or they need to pay validator fees, or not validator fees, but like um, fees in Aragon chain to actually use the chain. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at it that way. It's kind of like, you know, 
the more the adoption there is, the more we can offer our services to these DAOs. Um, and therefore, like if they use these services, they're going to be better off because they're going to be able to do more things and cheaper and faster. And then that results in better services and as, as well more DAO adoption. So it's like a very kind of like synergistic thing. But TLDR, if you just want to create a DAO, not token needed. Okay, okay, interesting. But then you need to like pay like a, a fee to be on either Aragon Chain or, or Ethereum and that, that will incentivize people to be staking ANT on, on Aragon Chain as well. Basically, if you want to use Aragon Chain, you will have to pay um, some fees. If you want to use Aragon Core, you will have to pay some fees. Um, and for all of that, the expectation is that more ANT will get locked up. Right. Okay. And then like on your roadmap, you were talking about in the future, you know, dissolving your uh, legal entity, right? The foundation, is that like a near term thing or like, in, or in what time frame, frame are you thinking that will happen? Yeah, I mean, if you ask me a couple of years ago, I would tell you in a matter of months, if you ask me now, uh, it's probably a bit, a bit more. Um, when you discover more and more things and you get less naive, you discover that things are not that simple. Hmm. So. Um, I think the very, very, very first thing is just to deploy the Aragon network DAO, mm. which will happen probably this year, and then get that going. And so that DAO will have like a clean pool of capital that it can deploy towards things and eventually make the ecosystem sustainable. And then after that, the association will be way less needed, right? Um, mm. So my idea is that then the association will kind of like, right now people wouldn't think about Aragon, they think about Aragon and the association by default. My idea is that from that point on, the DAO will be the canonical thing people think about. And the association will just be this kind of supplementary entity that kind of helps, but it's not fundamental. And then over time, we just have to make it um, less needed until I can fire myself. That is like kind of my litmus test. I need to be able to fire myself and then everything should use. <laughs> That's another example of why like DAOs are so different. Like what founder is looking to fire? themselves <laughs> yeah well satoshi did that right and uh, it's right. been working out very well so yeah it's very different to like traditional startups yeah so crazy okay and then um to finish last question i always ask the big picture view that people have in their minds when they're building things so for you and DAOs and decentralized organizations what is this big picture long-term view that you're working towards i love the idea of these entities to be able to be autonomous and basically motivate a bunch of people to work around a shared idea without necessarily uh, having leaders or having anything that could be corrupted. And I think that's a very powerful force in the world. And also I look forward to having these DAOs that are kind of like manifesto based because a bunch of things, if you look at companies, like they corrupt over time and they completely forget about what they were doing in the beginning. If we can encode these rules very clearly since the beginning, I think we might fix some of the structural problems uh, that derive from corruption. Right. Yeah. So hopefully these structures give way to a better way of doing things and incentivize people to just be better. <laughs> uh, exactly. The current system isn't, isn't exactly doing that right now. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> Luis, it's been such a pleasure chatting. It's so interesting, um, as always, to hear from you. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week 